So we're doing this um, series and um, looking at the festivals in the Jewish calendar that we see in the Old Testament. And we talked about this idea that there, there are these uh, seven key ones um, that, let's see, let me pull this up. This is, and I always have to make it larger, huh? Because it's hard to see. I didn't do that earlier. A little better there. Um, there we go. Um, and uh, we're looking at different festivals and asking a lot of questions about them. We're, we're seeing some common threads that, that, that uh, the Old Testament is a foreign world to us oftentimes, and so we're kind of having to grapple with what, what's going on in these, in these different texts. But um, tonight we're looking at one that actually does not appear in the Old Testament. It's called the Feast of Dedication, or uh, we might more commonly know it as Hanukkah. It's not in the Old Testament. It's in, if, uh, if you have a Catholic Bible, the Apocrypha, there are two books there, First and Second Maccabees. You will find this account of the Feast of Dedication um, there. Now, you might kind of wonder, well, we're not Catholic. Why are we talking about it? Just because it's not in the Bible doesn't mean it's not important. And in fact, I think you'll see by the end of tonight, there are things that happened that came out of the events surrounding the Feast of Dedication, what, what led up to it, that color the New Testament more than you could imagine. More than you can imagine. In fact, when we get to the end, I think you're gonna see some things and you go, oh my goodness, I, did, I didn't realize how much these events gave tone and flavor and influence, really even shaped much of the worldview of the world that Jesus was born into and the writers of the Gospels. So here's, let me give you um, Oxford Dictionary of Christian Church. This is their entry for what the Feast of Dedication is. It says, the feast instituted by Judas Maccabeus in 165 BC to commemorate the purification of the temple and its altar after their defilement by Antiochus Epiphanes. It was ordered to be observed on the 25th day of Chislev each year and kept for eight days. A specific feature of the feast, apart from the fact that it could be celebrated outside of Jerusalem, meaning it wasn't one of those pilgrimage you know, festivals, uh, was the lighting of lamps. Hence, it is sometimes called the Feast of Lights. Modern Jews observe the Feast of Hanukkah. It falls in late November or December. Um, modern Jews today, this, this is one of two feasts or festivals that are celebrated uh, more than any other. So it's, it's, it's a very popular one. It's, it's typically been neutered, <laughs> even if you talk to many Jews who celebrate it when they, they all, oh, it's this uh, you know, wonderful, happy you know, day and it's all about light and hope. It's actually came out of a very bloody civil war. So <laughs> that's not exactly accurate. And we'll find out a little bit more about that as we go. It came out of what we refer to as the Maccabean Revolt. And we'll talk a little bit about that and get into it. I remember hearing about, this is about a decade ago. In fact, I looked this week online as hoping there would be some positive update. There's not. But about a decade ago, there were all these news stories saying Mel Gibson is going to be filming and directing a book about the Maccabees, which would be awesome. It would, be, I'm tell, it would be so cool. It would be right up there with the greatest Christian movie Mel Gibson has ever made, Braveheart. 
Um, <clears throat> this is essentially Braveheart. I mean, th this, this is, if you've, how many of you have seen the movie Braveheart? Okay, this is essentially Jews doing what William Wallace did in guerrilla warfare kind of ways. That's kind of what we're stepping into in this story. It would be a fantastic movie. I'm dying for someone to make it. We, we see it referenced one time in the New Testament. So it was something that, you know, Jesus uh, in this context is very likely engaging in the celebration of the Feast of, Ded of Dedication. If you can see that up on the screen there, uh, this is from John chapter 10. We read, at that time, the Feast of Dedication, this is Hanukkah, took place at Jerusalem. This is, it was winter, Jesus was walking in the temple, the colony of Solomon, and then it goes into his exchange. Uh, I taught on this passage back in the series, Jesus Behaving Badly. So if you want to kind of look at what goes on here, you can go back and look at that or listen to that message here. Um, these events, as I mentioned, they're recorded in the apocryphal books of First and Second Maccabees. And it's like I said, it's a story that has lasting impact on the Jewish community, um, even to this day. And here's some things that we're going to encounter here. And if you've been a part of this series the whole time, these will sound real familiar. <laughs> um, it's going to involve the idea of sacred space. Remember we talked about that idea? Sacred space, sacred objects, and the idea of purging them when they are defiled or when they're contaminated. That's what's going on. Um, it's going to, another big idea that we keep hitting on, maintaining Jewish identity. And some questions that come up, these are the questions of Hanukkah to this day, is how far can we go in engaging in our world without compromise? Which that's a question we ask, right? All the time. How, how much, how, where's the line? <laughs> what's too far, what's not far enough to where I might lose my identity? That's a unique aspect of following Yahweh. What does that look like? And then thirdly, um, there are events that give rise to, as I mentioned earlier, the world of the New Testament that Jesus is interacting with, that his disciples are, are swimming in that water without knowing it. We'll see here in a little bit. So <clears throat> let's go ahead and jump into what's going on here. There are a number of things. First of all, the story that we're going to get into, let me give you three layers of conflict and this, this, this is going to create some rub here, as you see. The first layer of, of conflict is going to be between uh, two Gentile pagan kingdoms. Um, these are the heirs of, in fact, let me go to, let me see if I can pull this up here. I think I've got a map. Um, that's not the right one. There it is. <clears throat> Let me show you a, what is that doing? Uh, one, there we go. This is a map of the Mediterranean world. <clears throat> um, the, the gray area is the area that Alexander the Great established his kingdom. It's massive. It's this one world, almost the, almost the entire known world at the time. <clears throat> largest piece of it anyway, that he, he dominated. <clears throat> and when Alexander the Great um, pushed this, this Greek influence, Alexander the Great, his teacher was Aristotle. He, he was taught um, and about this idea of we need to unify. One of the great ideas in Aristotle's philosophy is how do we find the unity amidst the diversity? What is that? So he wanted 
Alexander the Great was sort of applying Aristotle's idea politically. And he was saying, what's the one unifying thing? And Alexander said, well, it's Greek culture. If we all shared a culture, you know, a language, that sort of thing, that would bring unity to the diversity. And so he pushes, um, he goes out across and, and pushes Greek culture and, you know, control through uh, Asia Minor, as you can see there, through Syria, down into Palestine, and then into Egypt, and then eastward, all the way as far as the Indus River. And again, he creates this huge one-world empire. Problem is, he died right as he got to the east, and he had no heirs. <clears throat> he didn't have any children. So who would all of this control and power go to? Well, he had generals. I think, I think initially there were seven generals who were all kind of vying for power. And so they cut things up first in five sections, whittled down to about four. <clears throat> and that's that next picture that we have here is, um, this is what it looked like <clears throat> under those four generals. And you can see their names there. <clears throat> Eventually there were two, two of the groups that became the most powerful. The other ones kind of sort of wither, they just weren't that important. And that is the green and the red section. The green is the Seleucid kingdom. So they have Syria, and then also you can see Babylon. And then the red section down below, uh, this, is, this is the Ptolemies, or the Ptolemaic kingdom, and they're down in Egypt. They're all Greek, but they, there are Greeks down in Egypt, and there are Greeks up in Syria and Babylon. These are the two groups, and if you can see, there's a bridge between their two power sources that's red here um, because initially it goes to the Ptolemies. This is Palestine. This is Judea. <clears throat> and so Judea basically becomes um, a game of tug of war. <laughs> the people down south want it, the people up north want it, and they're constantly kind of trying to get, because it's a buffer right? If you and your, and your enemy have a buffer area, you want to control the buffer area. So they want to try to control this tiny little strip of land that's about the size of New Jersey, where Judea is. And so the first tension in this story are these two powers, the Seleucids up north and the Ptolemaics down south. And they're, they're kind of going back and forth. The second layer of conflict is between conservative Jews in Judea, these are ones who are saying, let's go by the Torah, okay? They want the constitution of Jerusalem to be informed by Torah. And then the progressive Jews. The progressive Jews are saying, no, we, we really want, um, we want to change out the constitution of Jerusalem and have it be influenced by sort of Greek thought. They, they, they very much like the idea of let's be a city that's respected by the nations. That when the others, these other Greek nations look at us, they see Greek culture, they see gymnasiums, they see the educational institutions that form good Greek thinking People. It was this almost sort of enlightenment kind of idea. And they said, we want to be a part of that. We don't want to be left out. And then the third layer of conflict is among the, the progressives themselves. <laughs> um, how progressive should we be? And so the, and we'll see that in this story, even the progressive Jews, some said, well, let's go this far, but no further. And others go, no, 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 we're going all the way. And so there was a lot of infighting even with then. 
Now, Judea had been that little red section of land there kind of at the, at the top. Judea had been dominated by foreign powers for 400 years. Now, if you remember, when was another time that they had 400 years? <laughs> yeah, in Egypt. Remember, we talked a lot about that. One of the first things that God does when he brings them out is he gives them this calendar. He says, I, want you to be, I don't want you to be disoriented. I want you to have structure and, and rhythm. Well, this is another 400. It's, not as, it's different than the old one. But think about the different um, <clears throat> rulers in their life. Who is the nation that comes in and destroys Judea originally? Do you remember? It's Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, right? Once Babylon falls, Persia takes over. Once Persia falls, Alexander the Great, the Greeks take over. And then again, he's just passed away. Now his, these two generals are kind of fighting over things. We're talking another 400 years of lacking independence. So that's the place where they're at. After he dies again, they, you know, divide it up. Now, what's interesting is despite these 400 years, the Jews have largely done a good job of maintaining their identity. That's, that's what the whole calendar thing, you know, was about. So they've done a, largely done a good job of that. Now, there's good and bad to that. There's upside and a downside, you could say. The, the upside of maintaining their identity is that they, they have a clear... Uh, They've clearly preserved their uh, heritage, their ethnic traditions, the sort of ancestral ways of life and thinking about things. The downside to it is it posed kind of a stumbling block for how they could be integrated into the larger political, economic, and social network that had been created by Alexander the Great. Now, eventually, the Greek ruler of... Um, the north, the Seleucids, they take control because it was originally red here. So imagine that turning green. <laughs> the people up north take it. And um, the Seleucids were a little bit more um, harsh than the Ptolemaic uh, nation of, or empire of the, of the south. And the guy who was running it, Antiochus, was, was a nut. He was just an absolute <clears throat> crazy person. In fact, he called himself... He gave himself a sort of a second name, Antiochus Epiphanes. Now, if, you, if, you've, if you're familiar with like the church calendar, do you know what epiphany means? It's the appearing of God. I am Brent, the appearing of God. Okay, that's how he introduced himself. Antiochus Epiphanes. It's interesting, the Jews changed one letter, Epimenes, and it means madman. <laughs> so they said, oh, hello, Antiochus Epiphanes. <clears throat> and what? And, and so they called him Antiochus the madman because that's very much what he was like. And so what happens is the, the elite of Jerusalem, most of them priests, the elite of Jerusalem start to kind of chat. They start to kind of go, you know what? It really would be nice to be a part of the broader world. I mean, those Greeks, they have such nice things. It would be nice for people to want to relocate to this area. It would be nice for people to think of us as someone that they would do business with. It would be nice to have the respect that comes with some of this cultural attachments. And, and so what they said is, what if we were willing to Hellenize? Hellenize is to make Greek. Hellenization is the process of adopting Greek politics, Greek philosophy, Greek ideas, that sort of thing. So they, the, the elite of Jerusalem were in favor of Hellenization or becoming Greek. And they wanted uh, to begin 
sort of players in the larger international world. <clears throat> so, and this is where the, for instance, the book of 2 Maccabees opens up, and here's what we have. I'll kind of paraphrase the story <clears throat> for you. There's a high priest ruling in Jerusalem at this time. Um, his name is Onias, and Onias is very conservative. Onias and his whole administration, he has an eye toward strict covenant obedience and doing everything by the book, and by the book we mean the Torah. But there's a really sizable portion of Jerusalem's elite that's deeply frustrated by the conservatism of Onias. And so what they do is they actually back Onias' brother. Um, his brother's name is Yeshua. Jesus, that's his born name. He became an adult and he changed it to Jason, a, ni a nice Greek name. So that tells you everything you need, like you need to know about his brother. <laughs> his brother was all in favor of doing the Hellenization thing. Absolutely, you know, we want to be... So they go to um, Antiochus, they give him a big bribe. <laughs> he deposes Onias and he puts his brother Jason, who's a progressive, in the place of high priest. Because high priest runs things in all respects. And so um, Antiochus does this. Onias, he changes the constitution of, of, of Jerusalem. He goes with a constitution that was created in Athens. In fact, Aristotle himself had shaped the Athenian constitution. So he adopts that constitution for Jerusalem. And he, he builds a gymnasium. He builds all of the institutions to produce good Greek young boys and girls. <laughs> he brings all of that in there. Um, <clears throat> now... At this point, there were a lot of progressives. Remember I said even among the progressives, there was like um, rub, like you're not going far enough. The more extreme progressives said, Jason, you're still too attached to the whole Torah and Jewish thing. We need to go further. <clears throat> and so they actually oppose Jason. They go and uh, they get their own candidate, um, Manileus is his name. And same thing, they promised more tribute to Antiochus, it's just paying, you know, basically corrupt politics kind of thing. And so he puts Menelaus in charge as the high priest. What Menelaus, this is how far Menelaus goes. He goes to the temple, the temple of Yahweh, and he rededicates it to multiple deities. Because he goes, hey, we're a multi-ethnic um, city and our constitution reflects that. So we really should have this reflecting. This is the center of Jerusalem. It's beautiful. It's like the, uh, you know, the capital, so to speak. And so he rededicates it actually to these multiple gods. In literature, this is what is called the abomination of desolation. This is what it's referred to back in that time, looking back at that moment when these altars to foreign gods are erected alongside the altar of burnt incense. You remember we talked a little bit about that altar of burnt incense. So there are multiple altars in there to multiple God. Yahweh is sharing his home is the idea here. Well, as you can imagine, there's a number of conservative Jews who, who are deeply bothered by this sort of thing. And so they act out. What makes things even worse is something that Antiochus Epimenes, the madman, actually does himself. He comes to Jerusalem seeking the annual tribute, and Manilaes, he's like, I don't have it. Why don't you come to the temple and grab some stuff? So Antiochus actually goes into the temple, holy place, places where only priests were allowed to go, and he takes things from the temple treasury, 
gold and different elements like that. Second factor, there's an uprising. He has a lot of conservative uh, people who are, are pushing back. Uh, he has them killed. And this starts a series of brutal persecution. I mean, just horrible broke out in Jerusalem. Because Manilaeus, this new high priest who's super progressive, and Antiochus, the madman, they realize that extreme Hellenization will never happen if people are tied to this Torah thing. It'll never happen. And so as a result of that, Antiochus does a few things. He says, like, um, if you're caught with a scroll, it's death sentence. Any scroll of the Torah, it's death sentence. Um, Moms, if you circumcise your child, we will gut you and we will hang your child, your newborn baby, by the throat. Um, he, He outlaws all of the distinctives. Remember, they were able to maintain their identity even through 400 years. He goes, I'm getting rid of that. And so he outlaws their distinctives. He's going to make it illegal to practice that. This is the point where we get to Braveheart. It's like super cool. This is the Maccabeans. So what happens is this. Um, Martyrs are demonstrating their commitment to Torah through martyrdom, right? They're, maybe let me say it this way, they're, they're, they're demonstrating their zeal. I am so zealous for Torah observance, you can kill me. And there are these amazing stories, of them cutting off limbs and arms and them saying, God will restore my limbs in new creation. But a new kind of zeal arises. This zeal is by fighting back. And this hasn't happened before. And here's kind of what went on with that. So this new desire to um, stomp out Torah observance, it, it, it actually moves out just from Jerusalem and it starts going to the surrounding little villages. And it goes to one little village in particular, Modin. And here's basically what happened is this, the Syrian officer goes to this little village, it's like northwest of Jerusalem, a few miles, and um, he, he says, Here, here's the ultimatum. Uh, come forward, offer a sacrifice to the multiple gods represented by your community, or die. Pretty simple, right? And he picks one guy out in the community, his name is Mattathias. And Mattathias, he's a priest, he's an older man, but he's well-respected in the community. And he says... <clears throat> Mattathias, the Syrian officer, won't you, I'm going to give you the chance to do this first. Because see, if Mattathias does it, he's an influencer. He will influence the rest of the people. Mattathias refuses to do it. And there's sort of this, I guess you could call an opportunistic neighbor (laughs) who steps forward, maybe thinking this will put him in, you know, good graces with the Syrian official. He's a Jew. He steps forward and goes, okay, I'll do it. And Mattathias grabs a spear and basically skewers both the guys with the same spear, the Syrian official and his Jewish neighbor. In fact, let me read for you uh, the passage in 1 Maccabees where we see that. It says this. When Mattathias saw it, it says, the author says, he burned with zeal. Now, zeal is this key kind of idea here. Zeal is being defined for the Jews by this event. He burned with zeal in his heart was stirred. He gave vent to righteous anger. He ran and killed him 
on the altar. At the same time, he killed the king's officer who was forcing them to sacrifice and he tore down the altar. <clears throat> and with that, the Maccabean revolt begins. <clears throat> uh, that, that, that was the first domino <clears throat> that started this revolt. And so what happens, Mattathias takes his five sons, he's got five adult boys, and he rallies to, he and his five boys, all of the faithful, obedient Jews in the area that he can find. And he led them out into the hills. If you've ever seen pictures of the hills of Judea, out there they could, they could hide, out there they could train, they could begin stockpiling supplies. And best of all, they could start doing nighttime guerrilla warfare raids on Syrian camps. No one was doing that at those times. They, they even went into villages where Jews lived and they found apostate Jews, Jews who had gone so far in accepting Hellenization that they had compromised obedience. And really through a bit of almost a terror campaign, they, they would make Jews more afraid of them than they are afraid of Antiochus Epiphanes. You better be more afraid of us, your fellow Jew, so that you won't compromise and go along with Antiochus's <clears throat> laws. And so Mattathias, he's, he, he's already an old man. He makes it about a year. It's hard, rough life living out there. Mattathias dies. And um, <clears throat> quite soon in the process, and he leaves the, the power of the leadership to his son Judas. And Judas has the famous name, Judas Maccabeus. That's where we get this name from. That surname Maccabeus, it's not a given, it's, it's like a nickname. Uh, Maccabeus comes from the Hebrew word meaning hammer. Guess why he got that? <laughs> Guess what kind of military leader he was? Because he hammered the Greco-Syrian army. He absolutely hammered them. And so he, he got this name, Judas the Hammer, Judas Maccabeus. And he was very successful in this campaign, driving out the Syrian or the Seleucid army that had come down from up north. Uh, it's interesting, in 1 Maccabees chapter 3, it begins with a poem sort of in honor of Judas the hammer, and it says, it says this, he searched out and pursued those who broke the law, meaning Torah, Jews. He burned those who troubled his people. These are the Syrians. He went through the cities of Judah. He destroyed the ungodly out of the land. Thus he turned away wrath from Israel, meaning God's wrath. Because what, why did they go into exile back in Babylon? They weren't faithful to Torah. So he's, he's saying, we're going to be faithful to Torah, doggone it, if I have to kill you. <laughs> like, we're going to be faithful because we want to turn away God's judgment on us as a nation. And so Judas not only attacks Gentiles, this actually started more as a civil war. He was fighting his own people, and then it also branches out to fighting the Gentiles as well. But he goes in and he will uh, go into a community, forcibly circumcised children that were uh, left uncircumcised. And he and his band of guerrilla fighters, they're trying to not just push Gentiles out of Judea, but to purge. Remember, we talked about that the Day of Atonement. Purging the evil from their midst. Because um, if you go back to Deuteronomy 27 through 32... Deuteronomy 27 through 32, God is constantly telling the people that um, their, their protection 
by him as a nation, it's linked to their obedience. It is li- and it is. It truly is linked to their obedience. And so basically here's the question. When do we reach the tipping point that enough people turn away that God says, I'm bringing judgment? Who knows? <laughs> What's that point? I don't know. But he says, we can't reach that tipping point. That happened before. That's why we ended up in Babylon. It's a very understandable concern that he has. So <clears throat> this is a process, fighting the Seleucids. It takes several years. It's a, it's a long uh, fight and conquest. Three years into fighting, his dad's been dead for one. He takes over the next two years. They're able to recapture the center of Jerusalem, the temple itself. <clears throat> They're able to recapture it. And he, he and his men and the priests that are faithful to him, they remove all of these altars. They break them down, these altars that are there for other gods and sacrilegious altars. And he reinstitutes the one sacrifice to the one God, Yahweh. This is the cleansing, the purging of the temple. This is the focal point of what Hanukkah is, or the feast of dedication. He's dedicating the temple. He's dedicating sacred space, God's house, back to him saying, we're cleansing, we're purging it of impurities. And Antiochus had actually sacrificed a pig just to be offensive in the temple to Zeus, the most unclean animal. So they're, they're purging it of the offensiveness. That's what Hanukkah is. So again, Hanukkah has like bloody civil war backing dedication commitment stuff to it. It's, it's like a serious holiday. Um, <clears throat> and so Judah succeeds in large matter because, uh, you know, the bravery, the courage of his, of his men that they're willing to die rather than compromise. But he also, he also succeeds because the governor of Syria always underestimates him. Again, it's sort of like Braveheart where, you know, the king said, oh, they're just these, you know, foolish, untrained Irishmen. Just, you know, send out a garrison. Yeah, they already attacked the garrison and took them over. And so they keep undermining and underestimating the strength of Judas Maccabeus and his men. Eventually there's a civil war within the Seleucids themselves. They get really weak. And um, after about six years of fighting, Judas is able to achieve victory, massive victory over the Greco-Syrian army in some really amazing ways. There are some setbacks. Judas himself dies in battle, very difficult, gruesome death. So the uh, leadership goes to one of other of uh, Mattathias's boys, one of Judas's brother goes to Jonathan. He takes up the mantle, really successful. Does it, does it well. To the end of the revolt, Jonathan actually is actually able to gain more power by, by negotiating with the other side because they're, they're split, they're divided, they're becoming weaker in a lot of ways. <clears throat> but here's one thing that's interesting. Something, something sh- you see a shift in this leadership. Um, Jonathan actually receives the title or the office high priest wait a minute, he's, he's not even in a priestly, he's not in a, um, there's a certain priestly family that has the high priest position. It's been the way. He's not in that family. So you see this, it's almost like with the, the success of generation, there's a little bit of an erosion, maybe you could say. 
And he even receives it from one of Antiochus's men. Smells a little bit like compromise, a little bit. Um, then it finally goes to the last surviving brother of the five. His name is Simon. Jonathan gets assassinated. He too takes the title high priest and ruler, <clears throat> adding another kind of shade to it. Um, with, with his ascension, this is what's called the Hasmonean dynasty. This is their family. Um, one of uh, Mattathias's not so distant ancestors um, was um, a man by the name of Hashmon, Hasmon. And so this is the Hasmonean family. That's what they become known as, the Hasmonean dynasty, the Hasmonean <clears throat> family. That's how they're referred to from here on out. So Judea enjoys independence from foreign rule for the first time. Um, <clears throat> and Simon wins concession to finally have the very last Greco-Syrian soldier removed from the fortress in Jerusalem. That's like the last symbol of any foreign oppression or domination. And in that year, they actually started minting money, their own coins. We're not using those coins with those Greek faces. <laughs> We're going to use our own money. And so they actually start minting coins. They start dating things from the date of Simon and his rule. It's really interesting. During, um, <clears throat> during this period of time, and then even into the first and second century AD, <clears throat> when the Jews would mint coins, oftentimes they would put palm branches on the coins. Palm branches to, to the Jew, it was a symbol of national independence. It was a symbol of we are our own strength. <clears throat> Given that, how would you read this passage? The next day, the large crowd had come to the feast, heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took, what? Palm trees, branches from palm trees. They went out to him, carrying them. Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Even, look at the language there, king, leader. When they do this, it's, this is like shooting off fireworks on the 4th of July. It's a symbol of our dependence because they're, they lost their independence again. Rome's in charge now. Rome came in in like 63. <laughs> they only had it for like a hundred and some years. So <clears throat> you're starting to see like there are these connections even as we read some of these texts. Now let's go back to thinking about the family of this succession, the Hasmonean family started by Mattathias and Judas Maccabeus and so forth. There are some concerns. There are some growing concerns with this family. <clears throat> A lot of Jews had legitimate critique of the family because they were accepting the offices and taking on the roles that they did. Um, yeah, they had saved the nation. They were like, you know, like one of these, you know, like the Kennedys, I mean, the Bushes, they were one of these families that that name meant something. You know, they had saved the nation. Yeah, but does that justify taking these positions of power and not giving them back again the high priesthood? There was the, the, the Zedekite family were the ones who had the purview of the high priest. They were not of the Zedekite 
priestly family, so they shouldn't have been doing that. And so um, something, Jonathan looks a little bit like a usurper. He's taking things that don't necessarily belong to him, and it's, they keep giving it to the next one and to the next one, so it becomes really clear they're not going to turn it over. They're not going to turn over this rule to the traditional Zedekite line. Another issue that arose during this uh, dynasty's time was there was one brother in particular named John, I'm sorry, he was a son of, I think it was Simon. His name was John Hyrcanus. He also took the title king. Isn't that interesting? King? Which, Which family line does the king of Israel need to be from? David's the Davidic. He's not in the Davidic family. That's very odd. He's high priest of the Zedekite. He's not of the Zedekite family. And he's saying he's king, but he's not of the Davidic line. So there's, you know, something is, what's the uh, Shakespearean something rotten in Denmark? There's something wrong. <clears throat> and it, it, it seems to be kind of slowly showing its head. So first the priesthood, now <clears throat> the kingship. But this raises questions as I'm traveling through scripture through time, I'm, I'm approaching the New Testament as a reader. Question in my mind immediately is, what's going to happen when uh, the king, the Davidic king, shows up? What's going to happen? And there's a really interesting trajectory of power. In fact, let me, let me see if I can pull this. Uh, there's a slide here that I think is, is helpful to see... Um, I want to go to this one. Okay, do you see the name there? Mattathias, he's the original priest who out of zeal uh, starts this rebellion. Judas Maccabeus, his son receives it. It then goes to the other brothers, Jonathan, Simon. And then there's this series, most of them sons, that take the position. Under um, Aristobulus, the second things kind of blow up. (laughs) Rome starts to um, be more than just a disinterested neighbor. Rome comes in and says, we're going to kind of run things. But what's fascinating is with each, um, the ultimate purpose of this line, of this position, was to protect the right worship of God, right? That's how it started. It started by saying, we're going to protect the right worship of God. But what happened is, with each successor of this original revolt, the focus of serving God turned to seizing power and land. And as we look down the succession, Simon and John Hyrcanus and Alexander Janius and Aristobulus, finally Julius Caesar uh, puts... um, Antipater into this role. And so he's now, uh, and he's half Jewish. Um, he, had, he had converted, actually, John Hyrcanus had made the Idumeans convert, and this guy's from Idumea. <laughs> so he was forced to convert by one of the ancestors here. He's now in the role. And you know what's so fascinating? You know who Antipater's son is? <clears throat> Herod the Great. Herod the This is the guy that when we get to the birth narrative, of Jesus, he's in charge, who when he hears from the Magi, the king has returned, 
The king has been born. How does this placeholder for the right worship of God respond? Yeah. Wow. Find every child two years and younger in and around Bethlehem and have them slaughtered, have them killed. That sounds like Pharaoh. That's what Pharaoh did. The placeholder for the right worship of God is now Pharaoh? That's, that's, that's what the reader should be seeing, these connections. Wait a minute. Something is deeply wrong here. See, Herod, who was half Jew, again, through marriage and political manipulation, chose to step into a line and hold an office that was created for the direct purpose of protecting the worship of God. And how off is that? In fact, um, when you think about this, when we get to Matthew chapter 2, you know, the birth narrative, we read this. <clears throat> it says, uh, Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the time of King Herod, during the height of this placeholder, the right worship of God. Now, what, what does the reader think? Well, before you, because you know the rest of the story, <clears throat> let, me, let me read for, read for you a passage from Maccabees that tells us a little bit about what that role, that placeholder was supposed to do. It says, the Jews, this is back speaking of this placeholder, whoever is going to be, if it's Maccabeus or, you know, whatever, the Jews and their priests have resolved that Simon, that was the last son of Mattathias, should be their leader and high priest forever. But what comes after that? until a trustworthy, or some translations say, until a true prophet should arise. There was always the understanding that the person in this placeholder were waiting for a prophet to come. We're waiting for a true, trustworthy prophet. They will take this position. So there was always that understanding of the role, <clears throat> that they didn't own it. Um, it's, it, it, it reminds me of... Um, the, uh, if you've read the books or seen the movie, Lord of the Rings, do you know the return of the King, the fourth, the uh, third installment? And there's this guy named Denethor <clears throat> and Denethor is a steward of Gondor. He's the steward of see, the King rules from Gondor. Well, there is no King. It's broken. The line's broken. And so Denethor is, is maintaining it until the true one comes until the king comes. And of course, he's completely corrupted and compromised. And so when he gets wind that this, this ranger Aragorn might be in the line, that, that they thought the line was broken and done. And he's told he is here. And, and what's his response? He says, it's mine, right? I'm not going to turn it over to this guy, right? That's a striking parallel to what happens in this line as it's slowly corrupted. The office was to be held in trust. <clears throat> Lastly, um, Maccabees, this story, it, it, it foreshadows a New Testament character that you probably wouldn't think it was influenced that much, but um, imagine this. So these events have, have important, uh, again, influence on a key New Testament character. Now, who do you think of when you think about this? <clears throat> the zeal for the law exhibited by Mattathias and Judas, it's going after apostate Jews, the Jew who might have stepped over the line, you know, toward disobedience to the covenant. Um, I think it's very important background for understanding Saul of Tarsus. 
the Apostle Paul, right? His Roman name is Paul. His Jewish name is Saul. Um, what was motivating Saul to persecute this new movement growing up within the people of Israel? Well, I would suggest more than anything else, it was probably the exact same thing that was motivating Mattathias and Judas Maccabeus and Jonathan and Simon and John Hyrcanus and on, on down the line. It was a desire to promote, although through violence, strict observance to covenant way of creating national security. We want, we want our nation to be secure, enjoying God's ongoing favor, and ultimately hope that God will deliver us. Isn't that interesting how that works? When Saul saw Jewish Christians relaxing their um, observation of, it might be Sabbath or whatever it might be, Torah, speaking of the temple in a way that didn't say that's the center of things. They now said, actually, God's spirit lives in us. The temple is not the center. We're actually many temples walking around. Paul believed the covenant itself was being threatened. It's interesting, when Paul, uh, in, in, in the book of Galatians and Philippians, he remembers his zeal. He uses that word. He uses the uh, Maccabean word. He says, my zeal for the law, <laughs> and he recounts it. It's probably to people like Mattathias and Judas Maccabeus that Paul would have pointed to, that's my inspiration. <laughs> I'm being like that. That's how zealous I am for the law. And we know that he struggled with that guilt of realizing I was fighting against God in doing this. <clears throat> the markers of Jewish identity of uniqueness. Circumcision is one of them. There are three key markers. One is circumcision. This is the one that was practiced or, or that was targeted rather by um, Antiochus um, and this, you know, the Hellenizing priest to stamp out dietary restrictions. Um, in fact, there, there are stories of what the uh, people had to do who would, who would just give a little sign or be martyred say, just eat this one mouthful of pork. That's all you have to do. One mouthful of pork. And that's a sign that you're saying, I'm done with this observance thing. Circumcision, dietary restrictions, and number three is Sabbath observance, marking that seventh day of the week. These are the three markers that continue to be central to the Jewish community. <clears throat> this, again, brings us to Paul and the early Jewish Christian movement so that we can appreciate how radical <laughs> it is that this conservative Pharisee named Paul and these conservative Jewish Christians of the early church. This was their preaching message. Circumcision or uncircumcision doesn't matter to God. <laughs> what? <clears throat> that honoring one day or another, all days alike might be equal in God's sight. And amazingly, that a Jew could eat all things because thanksgiving to God sanctifies all food, equally. This explains this ongoing resistance in, in the synagogue, whether it be in Judea or as they're spread out all over. It wasn't just a matter of their belief about this Jesus guy. That's, that was key. That was a big piece of it. And, but it's also, also what got these non-Christian Jews very agitated was that these followers, these Jewish followers of Jesus, what is what they were saying about these essential markers of the covenant, circumcision, dietary law, Sabbath, 
and so forth. And their astounding willingness, in many cases, to set them aside for the sake of bringing the Gentiles, bringing us freely into the people of God. That's, that's what they realized. That was God's mission all the way along, was to bring the nations who God had disinherited, to bring them into God's family, that he wanted them. And that was Israel's ultimate call. They were to be the vehicle of bringing God's presence, God's blessing back into the world and having no obstacles between us and God. So some connections with the New Testament. <clears throat> As you read the book of Acts, you go to places like Acts chapter 15, and there's the Jerusalem Council. Why is the, why is the discussion of circumcision such a big deal? <laughs> well, look at the story that's informed us for the past 200 years. It's a huge deal. <clears throat> why is it that in Galatians chapter 2, we, we read of Paul, he said, um, I went and I visited Peter, and he had stopped eating with the Gentiles. Meaning putting a, a distinction, a break in between. And he said, and I rebuked him publicly. Um, <clears throat> why is it that the followers of Jesus don't understand the mission of the Messiah? Why is it that they think of him as a military Messiah? Why is it that Peter pulls out a sword in the garden? That seems rather ridiculous. No, it's not ridiculous at all. That's what you, that's zeal. That's what you do. That's why he tried to kill the guy, ended up just <clears throat> cutting off his ear. Why did all of his followers, because Jesus talked all the time, saying things like, I haven't come to be served, but to serve and give myself as a ransom for the many. The Son of Man must die on the third. Why can't they hear that? Because what story are they living out of? Braveheart, <laughs> right? How do, you, how do you bring the kingdom of God? Well, how did, it, how did we get the kingdom last time? We killed enough of those Syrian Greeks, right? Of course, that's how you do it. They're not stupid. They're informed by their history. That's the story they've been living in. It's a story that has colored them. So as you read the Gospels, if you realize this backdrop, they don't seem that dumb. You realize, well, that actually makes total sense. That's why Jesus' words sound so upside down. I remember one author, I think it was Dallas Willard, he said, <clears throat> when people encountered Jesus, he was like a crazy person standing on his head. What they realized later was he was upright and all of us were standing on our head. <laughs> Meaning he seems so back, he says crazy things. Pray for your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. Love those. It doesn't make sense. <laughs> Because Jesus' kingdom comes in a different way. It doesn't come by power. Because what happens when it comes by power? Well, we just saw it played out. It ended in Herod. That's, that's what grabbing things by power ends with. That's how it looks. So as we think about the Feast of Dedication, is it possible that like the Hasmoneans, in something in our life, we've started out with a really healthy zeal, like a really good passion for something, a good thing, maybe even something really good. But as time has gone by, it's kind of turned. It's a little bit maybe more about me. Is there a possibility that I look at all a little bit like Herod? 
Oh boy, I hope not. I pray not. God protect us from that. But we know it's possible. We know it can happen. Look at the dedication. This is the feast of dedication. More, more importantly than anything, because my dedication, sometimes it's awesome, sometimes it stinks. It's horrible. Look at the dedication of our King, King Jesus, who we read this about, who though he was in the form of God, he had it all, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Herod grasps. These other rulers, they, they grasped on to things. But he emptied himself by taking on the form of a bondservant, a slave, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name. In the Old Testament, that's when they talk about the name, that's Yahweh. The name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee would bow. That's what you do to kings. In heaven and on earth, God's heavenly family and his earthly family, and under earth, that is those who are disobedient, who are in rebellion in the spiritual world. And every tongue <clears throat> confess Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. I wonder if Herod would have realized what that title, King of the Jews, gets you. Because that's what was hanging over Jesus' head. King of the Jews. You try to grasp that, you try to take that, it'll destroy you. He's, a, he's the only one who can bear the name, who can bear the title. And so what we do is we do every week, <clears throat> we're going to move into a time of communion. And I hope this will, this will inform your reflection over these next few moments. That this is the king that you serve, one who did not consider equality that he had with the father, something to be latched onto, but he let it go. And then as Paul says, let that same mind be in you because we're to be students of our king. We're to learn from him. And so spend this time with the Holy Spirit. Grab one of the elements, go to one of the places in the room, grab the elements, come back to your seat, hold on to it. Don't take it. We'll all take it together after the song. Would you stand if you're able to, as you have the elements in your hand? We do this in obedience to our king, remembering what he has done in the past, his sacrifice, and look forward to his return in the future. And these elements point us in both directions as we do that. Let's take the bread, his body broken for us. And the cup, his blood of a new covenant. Heavenly Father, thank you for what you have done through your Son in our lives, in history, and in time going forward. God, we are grateful. Thank you that you love us, that you call us to yourself. Thank you that you are a good God. Father, would you go with us this week in power, 
Empower us, Lord, by your Holy Spirit for all the things that we face ahead of us. Thank you for your victory. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen. <laughs> Love being with you guys, as always, every week. Thanks for engaging. Thanks for being here. And see you next Wednesday. <laughs>